Two and a Half Admins, episode 53. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, got a plug for EuroBSDCon, which is going to be online this year. Yep, uh, September 17th to the 19th. On the 18th, I'll be hosting a panel about home labs. Right, well, link in the show notes. A blog post you found, Alan, on rachelbythebay.com was asking nicely for root command execution and getting it. Yeah, this is a little uh, C story of uh, working at a tech company and uh, finding uh, that their software had unexpected side effects, kind of. So they were in a security review meeting and they were talking about something bad that had happened because some vice president had uh, been able to run something as root when they shouldn't have and caused a problem. And so during the meeting, they were talking about how much root exposure they have in their infrastructure trying to decide what other problems like this might be out there in our infrastructure. And so they looked through their inventory system and kind of did the equivalent of an SQL query like select star from whatever table where it's running as user ID zero and it has some port open rather than not. And so the meeting wrapped up early and they spent the the rest of that time slot looking into it. And they noticed that one service that they had running basically everywhere had an optional pre and post command. So this service was normally used for performance measurement stuff and basically involved executing external commands. And, you know, it worked normally, they run it and it would analyze some stuff and give them back results. But it turns out that it supported having an arbitrary command run before and or after the benchmark or whatever you were trying to do. And so they said, this was a pretty scary hole. You could ask it to run pretty much anything and these commands would get run by the service, which happened to be running as root. So it meant that while the command it would execute on purpose would be a legitimate one. You could arbitrarily specify other commands to run before and after and do pretty much whatever you want. Uh, So one of them tried it and and basically just ran touch slash TMP slash their name dash was here or whatever. And sure enough, when they looked at that with LS, there's a file owned by root and it was created there. And they're like, oh, shit, that's not good at all. That's (laughs) fine. So that meant they basically had a root hole basically everywhere in their infrastructure. And as it turns out, nothing got logged because of it. Like uh, which command was actually run isn't logged. Like the pre and post contents are not logged. And so they had no way to tell if somebody had already found this and was using it or not. And it was a pretty terrible situation. So they went and looked at the source code to find out when that pre and post execution feature was added and when it shipped to production. And do a little date math, and oh, it's been years. So now we have no idea whether someone else has found it, exploited it, and left long ago. Uh, We have zero detection at all. Whoopsies. (laughs) What else could happen to make it worse? Well, we found out that there's actual business stuff that's using this pre-post feature. So we couldn't just yank it out and ship that to production right away. Because that would break stuff. So they're like, oh shit, now what do we do? This would be why when you're writing, uh, you know, NERPY, NRPE plugins for Nagios, you're actually not allowed to send parameters, let alone like commands to the remote clients. You can, but in order to do so, you literally have to add a uh, an argument that says, don't blame NERPY. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> little Easter egg they have there. So fortunately, uh, one of the people on the service team was able to look into it. And basically, they went through their source code and found all the legitimate pre and post commands that they would run and basically made a whitelist so that only those ones could run and any other commands would be rejected so that they could 
closed most of the hole while they figured out how to, you know, rebuild the uh, serious business applications that needed this prepost command to not need it the same way anymore. So they got the patch to at least mostly paper over the hole uh, and got that cherry picked and, and rushed out into production. And, then, you know, that was the end of that round of fun. Unfortunately, it was just the beginning of the general pattern of, oh, hey, I bet we can pop that thing too. And looking through basically everything they have and trying to figure out what else was exposed. And he says, you think uh, this would have touched off a new golden age of people being thoughtful about not running things as rude unless absolutely necessary and generally being paranoid about handling subcommands. But that's now how it panned out in general. Yeah, that golden age will start about the same time the golden age starts that people stop saying, oh, just, you know, chmod R 777 Yeah. <laughs> which we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah. So instead, I'm pretty sure it just pissed off the wrong people and the rest is pretty much as you would expect. <laughs> Yeah, suffice to say, if you work someplace that has enough machines, there's probably some way you can get root on all of them uh, if you hit them with a careful handful of packets. I've seen it happen far too many times at enough companies to expect things to stay secure. I'm not talking about buffer overflows and stuff like that, although those exist too. This is literally somebody wrote it to do this. <laughs> uh, you're just straight up asking a service to please run these commands for you as root and it gladly doing so. Maybe this is our version of the infinite monkeys thing. You know, enough software people, enough computers, enough time, someone at some company will eventually grant universal remote root access to everyone who knows how to read the same source code. I mean, you don't need infinite monkeys for that. I would say that if you have two or more people who have root access to a given system, the odds approach unity that at least one of them has exposed root in a really unsafe way. Aren't audits supposed to stop this sort of thing? Who's doing the auditing? Under what standards? To what specifications? You often, you'll have like an outside auditor. So if they don't know what the software is supposed to do, they don't know that it's supposed to have this pre-post command. So they see the port open, they ask about it, they're told that it's this software and it does this and sure. And that's the end of it, kind of. It's not in their vulnerability scanner database, so they don't pop it. They're like, nope, we ran our, uh, I mean, it's not Nessus anymore, but you know, whatever has replaced Nessus. And we ran our vulnerability scanner and this custom horrible thing that you created it's not in there. It's not known to the rest of the world. So, yep, looks fine to us. You said that's good, so it's good. You think that there'd be companies who would go around doing proper audits for people then? Or do companies just not want to know? A proper audit here would require reading all the source code and then raising a lot of questions about it. You're talking about, like, it could take huge amounts of time to read through that source code. And, you know, just reading it, it's very easy to miss stuff. And enormous amounts of money. And, you know, even if you're not taking the read the source code and know what everything does approach, which you... I mean, in a large environment, you absolutely can't do that because, you know, it's not all going to be open source and you you may not have the source code yourself. Even if you do have it, even if it's stuff that you developed, you may not be able to show access to that source code because you didn't actually create a lot of it. If it's a proprietary app, you're licensing stuff from other people that have their own restrictions. So then your next approach is say, well, all right, we're going to be more aggressive, you know, with network testing. We're going to be empirical and we're going to just fuzz absolutely everything and see what happens. And you can do that, too, but you run the very real risk of trashing production when you do it because you find the whole by breaking things. And a lot of fuzzing is about making the app crash and knowing, all right, now we've made it do something bad with this randomized input. But if it's a shell command... If it works or not, you don't necessarily have an easy way to tell. Fuzzing something like this to see if it actually ends up creating the file in slash TMP can be quite difficult because, you know, fuzzing, you 
pretty much have to randomize the garbage and, you know, or try, you know, every different known protocol for injecting the command in this thing. But again, a custom app, so it's going to have its own different way of doing it. I think one of the interesting things has been looking at uh, kind of the shift over the years in the meaning of low port numbers. As we've got things like port ACL on BSD, and I think there's something with systemd or something like that uh, on Linux, where you no longer have to run a service as root in order to bind to a port less than 1024. There are other ways to allow an application to bind to port 80 or 443 or, or whatever without having to run as root. I know um, GDNSD does something uh, like that on, I don't know what it does in Linux, but I use port ACL on FreeBSD so that the service never runs as root. So it doesn't have to start as root, open the port, and then drop root privileges. It just always runs as this unprivileged user. And I think we'll see more and more stuff go in that direction of not requiring root when, you know, the only thing they needed to do was open a port number or something. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account, or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Jim, you fell in love recently with an operating system that isn't Linux or basically anything else as we know it. Yeah, Serenity OS. I'd actually never even heard of it until the day I wrote the article about it. Uh, something crossed my feed about, you know, oh, hey, here's this thing that looks like Windows NT, but is, you know, Unixy under the hood. And I was like, okay, <laughs> sign me up to check that out. I'm, I'm very interested in that because, you know, I, I, my professional career and my larval days, uh, you know, I cut my teeth on Windows NT4. One of the first truly wise professional decisions I made was just saying, you know, hey, we're not going to put Windows 98, or at the time it was Windows 95, we're not going to put Windows 95 on all these company computers. I've literally never seen it before in my life, but I've read enough to know NT4 is what grown-ups should be doing right now. So I installed NT4 on all of this company's machines, and it was a little bit of a pain at first because, you know, most people, even in small businesses at the time, were running Windows 95 just like everybody was at their house. But it, it, the decision definitely paid off, you know, as I had machines with years of uptime, workstations and servers both. I can't not have nostalgia for that time in my life, you know, when I was coming to my own professionally in my mid-20s. And I still like the interface, you know. It, it wasn't shiny. It wasn't pretty. But it was incredibly functional. Like, you know, you, you didn't get lost and wonder where things were. Uh, it was a good look. So I took a look at the operating system and I was honestly just expecting like an NT themed Linux or a BSD, you know, when I saw it looks like NT, but it's Unixy under the hood. But as it turns out, it's considerably wilder and woollier and more wonderful than that. Serenity OS is a completely ground up design operating system. 
it currently has no third-party code inside the actual OS. The only third-party code you encounter with Serenity OS is when you actually build it, which you'll need to do from source because they don't have any ISOs and they don't have any version-numbered releases or anything yet. But um, it only took me about half an hour to go from what's Serenity OS to actually having its special VM up and running on my machine. It was was pretty quick and easy. I think there were like three individual steps. And uh, if you wanted to be very uncharitable, it might look kind of like that bash.org quote. You know, it says it only takes three steps to install Gentoo. (laughs) But uh, there's tons and tons of like semicolons and double ampersands. It's not that bad. It's basically one apt command that installs a whole bunch of packages, one more command to build the tool chain, and then the final command to build the actual Serenity OS VM. And the same command that built it launches it. It just immediately pops up in a QMU window on your machine. And um, like on the one hand, I feel kind of bad because I was pretty dismissive of Haiku when I looked through Haiku about a year or so ago for Ars Technica. I was like, well, this, you know, this is a toy. It, it, there's nothing you can really do with this. It doesn't have a functioning network stack. Uh, you know, the browser completely sucks, you know, yada, yada, yada. Like, it's neat that they're trying to do this thing and recreate the BIOS feel, but it didn't really do anything for me. But so now I'm fired up into Serenity OS, and there's a lot of the same kinds of issues in that, you know, it's it's definitely not done. It's not even ready for, you know, its founding developer to use it as a daily driver yet, which is his specific plan for it. He started creating this thing to be his daily driver operating system. And it's not there yet. But I will say this, in like two years dev time, it's closer than Haiku is in 20 plus. The network stack was fine. The browser is, uh, (laughs) well, it wasn't very functional when I looked at it because the TLS libraries were broken. But uh, the founding developer, Andreas Kling, told me that uh, that was a temporary state of affairs. The browser was broken right now. Normally, Uh, It works pretty well for most things. They don't support the full suite of TLS uh, algorithms yet, but enough to connect to just about everything. But more importantly, as a whole, it's kind of like the little girl in Jurassic Park moment, you know, like you, you get thrown into this thing you've never seen before. Every line of code in it has been written fresh for this thing. And yet it's just immediately it felt intuitive and familiar. You got stuff like find and grep, like it is a proper Unix system. Sort of, kind of. Um, it is a properly Unix-like system, but it's important to note that it is not a Linux. It is not a BSD. Many of the same commands that you'd expect are still there. Like, you know, ping is there, grep is there. Um, there's no sed. Uh, there's no awk. Syscontrol is there, you know, the S-Y-S-C-T-L. But... Uh, if you run a, a syscontrol a you know, for all to, to just get, you know, all the variables, there's like four variables, kernel variables that that exposes. So it is very different when you get a little under the hood or like you name dash a works, you know, how you get your kernel version on Linux. Uh, that also works on Serenity OS, but you know, it says like Serenity zero point whatever dash x86, not Linux or BSD or, or whatever. And the deeper you get, the more obvious it is that while this is Definitely a proper Unix-like under the hood. It's a different one. It's not a Linux. It's not a BSD. And it's not got a proper journaling file system either. It's EXT2. Yeah, it is currently EXT2, which is a little horrifying, but it does make a little bit more sense when you remember that that is not a port of EXT2. It's a clean room rewrite of EXT2. (laughs) You know, the the guy looked at the file system and said, yeah, I can write one of those. And uh, I don't even know if it's actually compatible. Like if you could export an EXT2 image 
from a Linux and import it into Serenity or not? I don't know. <laughs> Having seen people write ext2 drivers for BSD and so on, I think it mostly works. Like you definitely be able to mount a Linux image read only and copy the files out of it. You might run into specific problems. But that was the whole point when you make that for a BSD. Right. The whole point is you want to open that Linux image that natively created an ext2 and or you want to write to ext2 on a portable to share with Linux. Whereas when Andreas wrote his ext2 FS, it was just to have Serenity run on. Yeah. My first reaction was like, why wouldn't you borrow a bunch of code from BSD? And I read here that, you know, he started with a bit of NetBSD code to, to fill in the gaps to get things working, but over time replaced it all. And with it being a, a to BSD license, I'm now wondering if there's any better rewrites in there that, that BSD should take back <laughs> from what he'd done. I would be astonished if there weren't. It's all C++. And um, quite a few people have expressed that, you know, yeah, that is very clean code. It's very elegantly laid out. He takes a lot of pride in it. He shepherds his, you know, junior collaborators as they come in, which I thought was kind of neat. You know, he talks about it. he gets people come in that just kind of get captured by the look and feel of it and want to contribute. But they're like, ah, you know, I'm not I'm not really this level of developer. I, I don't really feel comfortable with C++. And, you know, he encourages them to get started and not just with what they were working on. But like, you know, if somebody comes in to hack a little bit on the browser. He's like, you should take a look at this issue in the kernel. I bet you could take care of that. He's trying to, to train these folks into becoming these crazy full stack developers like he is, where full stack doesn't just mean, oh, the front end and the back end of a web application. It means the kernel and a web browser and a, and a display manager and, 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 and. That's how I got into becoming a FreeBSD kernel developer. You know, I was just the sysadmin, and then I learned a little bit of C because I wanted to to use this existing library from a shell script. And then I was rewriting the bootloader and learning kernel code, and I was like, yikes. Yeah. But yeah, I would be astonished if there weren't, you know, good things to be lifted out of there. And one of the advantages to doing this complete greenfield approach that he's done is that it allows him and you know, his fellow developers to explore new and in some cases just deeply weird compared to what we're used to paradigms. Like nobody is going to go out there and write a spreadsheet application that, I don't know, dispenses with the traditional standard spreadsheet formula language that every spreadsheet has used since Lotus 1.2.3. Like nobody's going to do something completely different, right? Well, his developers did. <laughs> there, there is a native spreadsheet app that ships inside Serenity OS. And if you want to write a formula in the cells of your spreadsheet in this application, you use JavaScript. <laughs> Like in the cells, that's how you do your formulas, which like we, you folks in your you know homes and cars can't see this. But when I said that, like Alan got that meme look, like he just starts looking off in the distance and like raises eyebrows and nods his head like, well, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. Well, like if you think of Excel, it has its kind of limited language. And then if you want to do something complicated, it had like the Visual Basic script back in the day. And I don't I think I forget what it's called now, but their macro language and all that stuff. It's like. JavaScript makes more sense. And it really does. There are more existing resources and standard libraries and just enough for people to do stuff. The only thing I would say the downside of JavaScript is it tends to be bad at numbers. And that's not what you want in a spreadsheet. <laughs> like you don't want to be using floating point with dollar values in a spreadsheet. I'm sure they've solved this in, in the their app, but well, considering that it's also their own <laughs> greenfield implementation of JavaScript, I imagine they probably did. <laughs> Again, every freaking line of code is written, you know, greenfield. 
My only concern with that one would be the TLS libraries. It's like you shouldn't do your own crypto. <laughs> you are definitely not the first one to raise that particular concern. And what about the concern of not invented here syndrome? Like, wouldn't this development effort be better spent contributing to other open source projects? Boo! Boo that man! Boo! That's not how advancing open source works. Advancing open source works by multitudes of people scratching their own itches. A lot of them are going to be very similar. Then you get to see the different approaches and you choose the approach that worked better. Telling people, no, you can't make this thing because somebody else already made it doesn't mean that now they're going to go do the thing you want them to do. It means they accomplish nothing. They just turn around and walk away and leave because you're not forking over fabulous sums of money to them to hack on this project, they're hacking on something that they want to hack on. And we don't have to question whether, you know, this general approach works or not. We freaking know it does. What does the internet run on? Not Windows, not Mac OS. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, we sit here and complain about the, the duopoly on video cards. Is It's AMD or NVIDIA or get lost. Well, we don't want that for operating systems. We want more choices. You know, we don't want monocultures. We should have two very big choices, at least, if not more, for every piece of software. It's a problem that OpenSSL is the only good crypto library for TLS and so on. And, you know, that's why we have Embed TLS and Bear SSL and a couple of, and Wolf SSL and so on now. Polar SSL and LibreSSL. Well, LibreSSL is just OpenSSL with a lot of stuff stripped out. But yeah, the idea is we need to avoid the monocultures. I, I still say the biggest concern right now is that OpenSSH is the only big SSH server. And I like it and it's, it's well written, but I feel like we should have more than one choice there. And so yes, I'm, I'm definitely with, with Jim and not Joe on this is that plus the other thing is you don't get to tell other people what they should do with their time. The whole point of open source is you have to want to do it to build good code. If you're just doing it because it's your job, you're not going to write the same quality of code as if you're doing it because you want to, because you have a vision. And it's where all this stuff came from. If the same mentality had existed for Linux, then Linus would have went and worked on Windows or AT&T's operating system, and we wouldn't have any of the things we have now. Yeah, true. And as a way to help you get over addiction problems, this is probably among the healthier ones, right? So... Can't knock that. Absolutely. You know, some people build a car. Some people build a house. He's building an operating system. Okay. This episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. Training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins and sign up for a seven day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. 2.5admins.com slash support if you want to find out more. And remember, $5 or more per month on Patreon gets you an advert-free RSS feed. 
And show at 2.5admins.com is how you get in touch with us, whether that's feedback or your questions for Jim and Alan. And do send in your questions and feedback because that's what keeps the show going. Okay, Alex says, given that enterprise-grade drives like Seagate Exos and WD Gold are at better price points than the NAS drives, Iron Wolf and Red, is there still a reason to go for the NAS drives over the enterprise drives? Well, the big thing is if you're buying an enterprise drive, you need to read the data sheet. You need to read the whole data sheet. You need to know what you're looking for because everybody's enterprise drives assume that everybody that's buying them is, you know, they're buying crates of them. And yes, they are doing exactly what I just described. They're reading the data sheet, looking for exactly the feature set they want. And sometimes those feature sets will be absolutely anathema to, you know, a home or small NAS user. And if you don't know all of the technical jargon and detail and you aren't detail-oriented enough to read that whole data sheet and make sure that specific model of WD Gold or, you know, Seagate Exos is exactly what you think it is and not an SMR drive or a host-managed SMR drive, you know, even worse, that literally won't work when you try to plug it into your machine, then you're a lot safer off sticking with the NAS branding. Yeah, and the model numbers, there can be ones that there's a very subtle difference in a model number, like an A is a B or like a, a 1 and an L or something. And then suddenly this drive has 520 byte sectors, not 512 byte sectors, because this holds the little checksum for the self-encrypting drives and so on. And you get entirely different things and it's not going to do what you want. I have some of those Exos drives. And, you know, if you buy the specific right ones, like Jim said, you got to read the data sheet and make sure you actually get the model that you want. Then it really depends what you're doing with it. Some of the NAS drives are specifically designed with uh, vibration stuff to deal with putting 16 of them in a chassis. And if you're buying an, uh, an enterprise drive that's not meant for that, it might not work as well. Uh, it might have problems or it just, you know, it's not supported by them if you use it in that configuration. But it really comes down to look at the data sheet and see if it does what you want it to do and if it makes sense. You don't want a drive that's going to be slower than what the NAS drive would have been or whatever. So yeah, it really depends. Also, when looking at the price, you have to look at, is the price always been this way? Or is it just a temporary distortion because of all the chai and other nonsense going on? Chia. Sorry, chia. And the uh, enterprise drive normally would be more uh, expensive than the NAS drive. It's just that a supply shortage has driven the price of the NAS drives up. But I, I don't know that I have a feeling that you would want to avoid the enterprise drives. Like I have some Western Digital Golds, although those are mostly warranty replacements for a, a previous Western Digital drive that doesn't exist anymore. And so the replacements they give me were the WD Golds. Yeah, they're fine if you get the right ones. There's absolutely yeah. nothing wrong with the right model of enterprise drive. But if you just want to be able to say, hey, I want to go out and buy vendor brand eight terabyte drive and know that you got the right thing, enterprise drives are not for you. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So if I say I'm going to buy an Ironwolf 8 terabyte drive, I know what I'm getting. I'm getting a drive that is 7200 RPM that has heavier duty bearings because it's expected to be packed in, you know, a high vibration environment. Uh, I know it's not going to be SMR. I know it's going to be, you know, within a particular performance profile. So I can just say I want an Ironwolf 8 terabyte or an Ironwolf 4 terabyte or an Ironwolf 12 terabyte. And I'm done talking about that. You can't do that with the exhaust because if you get the wrong exhaust, it's not even going to work when you plug it into your machine because it's looking for host managed SMR and you don't have that. Or in some cases, it might be drive managed SMR, just like, you know, the desktop drives that you don't want. Because again, see the expectation when you're buying enterprise drives, 
Although it has now gotten to the point where you can buy individual enterprise drives, you know, from from some of the distributors, that's not really how they're meant to be bought and sold. The concept when these vendors are creating their enterprise drive models, they have the idea that somebody's going to buy like a thousand of these things at a time, and they're going to research the decision for at least a day between two or three vendors before they make the call. So you can expect them to read over the whole data sheet and know exactly what they're getting and pick the exact spec that they want. If that's not the experience that you want to have, if you don't want to spend a good couple hours, honestly, making sure you understand what you're getting, enterprise drives are not for you. You're looking at four to six different sector sizes that are they'll have in there, whether they have self-encrypting and other encryption settings. There'll be you know a FIPS-compliant version, which actually just means worse but standardized encryption, and a bunch of other options. And then it's like, well, which interface do you want? We have SATA and SAS at this speed and SAS at that speed. And then we have dual-ported versions. And you know, there's all these extra complexities you don't have with the NAS drives, and you just have to make sure you get the right one. Uh, and so it can be very tricky when you're going with some of those distributors that are just bulk uploading, you know, a price list from a drop shipper and are not putting in all the details of what exact part numbers, mm-hmm. because you need that one that's the exact part number. Otherwise, you're getting a drive that doesn't do at all what you want. Or in a lot of cases, they're just copy pasting, you know, from one drive model to the next and be like, ah, eight terabyte drive from Seagate's an eight terabyte drive from Seagate, right? I don't have to copy out all this stuff, you know, all these times over. I can just copy and paste that. Nope. <laughs> For sure, don't try to buy enterprise drives off Amazon because they just lump all kinds of unrelated things together in there. And some of it's Amazon's faults and some of it's shady sellers and so on. But it's just, yeah, you can definitely end up with the wrong stuff. And then in the enterprise drives, there can also be, you know, a bunch of different models that are the same hardware, but completely different firmware that optimize for different things. There are drives that are designed to deal with the writes first and just do reads when we have spare time or ones that are the other way around. It's like we could put off the writes if we did when, you know, it has to return this read within this many milliseconds. And if you get the wrong one of those uh, for your workload, it's going to, you're just going to be like, why is this hard drive so shit? And it's like, because you bought the one that specifically was like that. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.